0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. My name is Jr. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, one thing about me that you should know is that I love to smoke meats, barbecue, Texas style. Uh, I got into I got into barbecuing uh, relatively late. I started on the grill and then sort of like upgraded to smoking. Uh, but I've become fascinated with it as uh, a way of preparing food. It, it, it's, one of the, it's one of the ways of cooking that is way more art than it is science, though the science of smoking is fascinating. Uh, barbecue actually originated in, uh, on, on the island, what we call today the island of Hispaniola, uh, uh, where the Dominican Republic and Haiti are. And it, it, it emerged as a way of preparing pork uh, among enslaved peoples. The reason for that is because the cuts of meat that are most uh, traditionally smoked, now people smoke everything, right? Um, which, which is great, I'm not complaining about that, but the, the, kind of tr- the original traditional cuts of meat are the pork shoulder and the brisket. Uh, pork shoulder, obviously, from the pig, brisket from the cow. And it was th- it's those two cuts that were traditionally smoked because they're incredibly fatty, tough pieces of meat. Uh, And typically when you just like cook them, you you stick them in the oven at 350 or something like that, they come out really uh, borderline inedible. Uh, And there's actually a really interesting scientific reason for that. Uh, If you know anything about how smoking meats works, uh, the mantra that barbecuers use is low and slow. You want to keep the temperature way down and you want to smoke the meat for, or cook the meat for a long time. So, you know, a a pork shoulder is usually an hour to an hour and a half a pound. A brisket is usually even longer than that. So, you know, a 13, 14, 15-pound brisket is probably going to be on the smoker for up to 20 hours. A pork shoulder that's 10, 10, 11, 12 pounds, same thing, probably going to be on there for 12, 13, 14 hours. And if you... Uh, put a thermometer in the meat while it's on the smoker, you're going to notice something in the temperature graph that pitmasters call the stall. And I want to show you a picture of it. So this is, this, is, this is what it looks like over, this is only, a, you know, an 11-hour smoke, which is pretty short. But you can see the internal temperature of the meat starts way down there around 30 degrees and then for the first two and a half, three hours, it rises really consistently and steadily, but then right about the two and a half hour mark, it hits just over 150 degrees, and then it basically stops. And I gotta tell you, when you first start smoking, uh, the stall is where people freak out. Because again, up until that point, the meat was clearly cooking, right? And then it just really seems like it's not cooking anymore. And that goes on again. If you look at the temperature graph here, this goes on for six hours, which is more than half of the time of the total smoke. And so if you're sitting there looking at your thermometer, you just, after like 30 minutes, you're like, is something wrong? And then after an hour, you're like, I think, I think something's wrong. And then after four hours, you're like, I... This is apocalyptic, right? The meat just stopped cooking. We can't serve this. Good pitmasters, though, know you don't freak out during the stall. Because even though it looks like nothing is happening right now, the stall is actually where everything is happening. This is where the thing that makes barbecue one of the best cuisines in the world takes place. And what's, what's actually happening at a scientific level is all of the heat energy that's coming from the fire that's going into the meat is now working to convert all of the fat that's all through that meat. It's starting to melt it and it turns it sort of into like a meat, or like, a, like, a, a, a gelatin, like a gelatin. It's just like melting it and going all through the meat and it's what gives barbecue that melt in your mouth, fall off the bone tenderness. When you uh, cook it at a higher temperature, uh, that doesn't happen. In fact, instead of the fat melting throughout the meat, it crystallizes and basically turns into rubber bands, which is why you get that, like, you're just, like, chewing on it for an hour before you can swallow it, and it's dry, and it's not good at all, right? So, So the trick to really, really great barbecue is to be patient during the stall and just wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and eventually, if you do it right... It's going to finish the stall, and then the temperatures are going to start rising, and then that's when you know your meat's almost done. The most important thing you can do during the stall is tend to the fire, okay? You want to make sure that the fire stays under 250 degrees. Remember, low, and you want to be patient, slow. In fact, one of my barbecue buddies always said, don't, don't forget, if you look and you ain't cooking, right? Leave the meat alone. Don't look at it. Don't open the smoker. Don't mess with it. Don't poke it. Just leave it. And no, it looks like nothing's happening, but this is where everything is happening. So just be patient. Just wait. Smoking meat is obviously a lot of work, right? Uh, There's all of the time of building the fire, getting it to the correct temperature, trimming the meat, putting the rub on it, all that kind of stuff. Before you even put it on the smoker, then it's waiting. And again, this is a real short smoke, only 11 hours. Like, that's nice, right? Um, Sometimes you're looking at 20 hours, right, to do this. It It is a ton of work. Uh, But of course, the best part of smoking is not when it's in the stall, it's not when it finally comes off the smoker, it's when you invite your friends over and you carve that thing open and you get to eat delicious, delicious, melt-in-your-mouth, fall-off-the-bone barbecue. That can only happen if you're patient, if you trust that while the meat's in the stall, that's where all of the important work is being done. Now, I talk about barbecue maybe too often, people have said, as a pastor, I don't know. It's up to you. Your mileage may vary. I like talking about it because I think it's such a really cool metaphor for faith. Uh, I think in the life of faith, I've been a pastor long enough Uh, to know that uh, we experience something in the life of faith that is very similar to what pitmasters experience in the stall, where it can seem like our faith is growing and growing and growing, like leaps and bounds. We're having all of these amazing experiences, and then sometimes it feels like we just sort of even out. And we do all of the same things like pray and come to worship and read scripture and, uh, you know, serve in our community and all those things, and it just doesn't feel like the same kind of stuff is happening. And we wonder, did something change in me? Am I just not doing these things correctly anymore? Am I not, uh, am I not faithful enough? Am I not trying hard enough? Uh, And we wonder what we did wrong. And what I want to suggest today is that actually when we experience this sort of stall in our life of faith, that, that nothing's wrong. That in fact, uh, maybe while we're in this time of stall, uh, the Spirit is still doing really important work in our life, uh, both in our individual lives and in the lives of our faith community. And the most important thing we can do is tend to the fire of our faith, tend to our uh, connection to the Holy Spirit, uh, not to get caught up in worrying about the outcomes of our choices, but rather trust that as we continue to do the things that God calls us to do, that the Spirit is at work even when we can't see it, even when we don't feel it, whatever that means, right? And we trust that God is faithful to us and that the Spirit is still working. Now, we're going to talk about what that looks like in some really specific and concrete ways today. Uh, and so I hope you're excited about that. I hope uh, that your eyes are not rolling too hard when I talk about the faith of the low and slow, right? The faith where we trust that God is at work, even when we don't discern that God is at work. And so I want to invite you to begin by celebrating and singing with us today, uh, because this is, what, this is what faith looks like, is trusting that God is doing what God has promised God is going to do. And so we respond by celebrating and by singing and by uh, choosing to believe uh, no matter what our experience of that is coming in today. So would you stand with me? And I'm going to hand it over to Nathan and Cynthia as we sing together. This summer, we have been centering your questions. So we we spent uh, a few months gathering your questions together and then sort of sorting them out into some different weeks that we can talk about. And so, Uh, The two guiding principles we've been using during this series are first, that here at Catalyst, we don't consider questions a threat to faith. We don't consider them evidence of weak faith or anything like that. In fact, quite the opposite. We think that asking good, uh, thoughtful questions are a way that we grow in our faith, a way that God invites us to love with all of our minds. And the second thing is that uh, for us, these sermons that are engaging these questions are not designed to be the ends of conversations. It's not like, well, you asked, we answered, and we're done. Uh, That's never going to be a problem again. No, uh, quite the opposite. We understand questions to be uh, good and the beginning of long conversations. So we want these sermons to kind of kickstart conversation and continue conversation and invite more conversation, not shut them down. Uh, And I I think you'll see that today. Today, we're introducing some, I think, concepts that are uh, liberating and exciting uh, that may be new to some of us, but I hope that they are provocative in the way that they invite us to continue, continue wrestling with them and considering them and looking for how they might show up in the rest of our lives. So with that in mind, I want to show you the question that we're looking at today. What about the joy and peace of the Lord from the epistles? Is this something that's experienced emotionally or just an external reality? I mean, how can we expect to see this manifest in our life as it relates to the fullness of our life? Can all believers expect to have access to that in our lifetime? Okay, good questions here, right? What, what is this joy or peace of the Lord that we're meant to experience? And, and I, think, I think this is such a good question because what I see happen a lot is Christians uh, have this sort of unspoken expectation that we should all be happy all the time, and that we should, none of us have struggles with our faith or questions. And so when we don't experience peace or joy all the time, uh, we feel like maybe we're bad Christians, or we don't have enough faith, or we're missing something essential that everyone else around us seems to have. And uh, I want to show you today that that's not at all uh, how peace and joy are experienced in the text of Scripture. Uh, and so I hope, again, that's liberating for us, but then it does beg the question that the question asks, right? Like, well, well then what are they, and how are we meant to experience them, right? So uh, the first place we're going to turn is Leviticus chapter 7, which, you know, famously is the peace chapter of the Bible, right? Uh, it's not. Don't worry if you didn't know that. It's, uh, it's not. Uh, Leviticus 7, if you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, that's on page 65, and as you're turning there, Leviticus is sort of the heart of the legal code of, of God's people, Uh, And this particular text is kind of exactly what you expect out of Leviticus. It's rules about sacrifices okay? So uh, in the ancient culture of the Israelites, uh, they were centered around a tabernacle, which was like a portable temple, and then later the temple, which was a non-portable tabernacle, right? They're the same building, and this is where they understood that they could come to encounter the presence of God. So, you know, God's physical presence on earth lived in the, the holiest place in the middle of the tabernacle or the temple, and they could interact with God and have relationship with God by offering Sacrifices, and there were all different kinds of sacrifices. Uh, the one we probably most commonly think of are the sacrifices for sin, but there were also harvest offerings and, and all kinds of other stuff, including the one that we're going to be looking at today, which is a peace offering. Okay, uh, the Hebrew word is the shalamim, and it's related to the word shalom, which a lot of you probably have heard is the Hebrew word for peace. Right, so peace is shalom. The peace offering is the shalomim. Okay, they're connected. So I want to read just this one verse here from Leviticus chapter 7. I want you to watch for, see if there's just anything in here that that, uh, strikes you as as a little surprising. Maybe it'll all strike you as surprising. I don't know. We'll see. So verse 15, the meat of the peace offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the same day it is offered. None of it may be saved for the next morning. Okay. Did you see it? When you offer a peace offering, you're bringing a goat or a bull and you're bringing it to the priest and they're slaughtering it and then they're cooking it and they're taking the, the fatty cuts and burning them on the altar to give to God and then you get the rest back as the food. And when, so the idea is kind of when you're eating, when you're eating, you're sharing a meal with God, right? Because God ate the smoke of the sacrifice and you're eating the rest of it. But in this particular offering, the peace offering, uh, Leviticus says, You can't save any of the animal. You have to eat the whole thing. I don't know if you've ever seen a cow. They're pretty big, right? Goats also famously, a lot of meat on them, right? So even if you're offering a small piece offering, the law says you have to eat the whole thing, okay? This is not a job that can be accomplished by a single family. It's not. And and if you're talking about a cow, you're talking about, at minimum, an entire village having a barbecue together, okay? And that's not a joke. That's not me making light of it. My friend Rabbi Eli, when I was texting him about this, he was like, oh yeah, yeah. shalom. You got to talk about the shalomim. It's a barbecue, okay? That's how he describes it, all right? The peace offering was a party. It was a barbecue. It was something where you had everyone together and you cooked the meat and then you all ate together. And again, I know that sounds cool. It's cool because we like barbecues and we like the idea of a festival, but also remember that the ancient Israelites lived in a subsistence agrarian economy. Okay, that means that most of them barely had enough to get by. If they had enough to feed their families every day, they were considered to be doing pretty well. They did not routinely have extra. But every now and again, Someone in the village would have a little bit extra. And when they did, time for a Shelemim. It was time for a peace offering. And the peace offering wasn't between them and God. It was between them and God and their whole village. It was understood that this is a time to party to celebrate, to celebrate that every now and again, we get a little bit more than we need, and we can celebrate that together as evidence of God's goodness and provision for us. So I chose, I mean, there's lots of verses that we can use to talk about peace in the Bible, lots of shalom that you can talk about even in the Old Testament. But I chose this one because I think it's such a stark and surprising, at least for me, because it's just not how I usually think about the sacrificial system, right? As this site of, of overwhelming abundance and joy. And yet when God talks about peace, this is God's vision for peace. It's not just the absence of conflict that I think a lot of us are used to thinking about peace of, but it's this, it's this positive movement towards wholeness, towards largeness, towards uh, flourishing for everyone, where it's like a big barbecue that everyone's invited to. And I just think that's a beautiful picture of what God's peace is. So uh, I want to hold off there and bring the worship team back up, and I want to move back into celebrating God's provision for us with that picture in our minds. Imagine we're all at a big barbecue together. I know I already got yelled at by our production team for not providing smoked meats on a day we were talking about barbecue, okay? So I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, okay? Uh, I'll do better next time because there'll be a next time I talk about barbecue for sure, right? But for now, we're we're just gonna use our imaginations together and imagine that we're celebrating at God's feast together. So would you stand with me as I hand it back over to Nathan and Cynthia? Joy is the other idea that the the question was getting at. What about peace? What about joy? And I like that because these two ideas are actually connected pretty closely in Scripture. Uh, So if you have a Bible, turn with us over to Romans 14. And again, if you've got one of those free Bibles, that's 683. Uh, Now, as you're turning to Romans 14, uh, joy, I think, gets conflated with happiness a lot. And In Scripture, they're really not the same thing. Happiness is an emotion. It's it's an emotional reaction to circumstance. uh, And joy is not. Joy is something uh, deeper. It's more foundational, and it's connected to uh, faith, not to circumstance. I want to show you what that looks like. The Greek word that the New Testament uses for joy is kara, with ch kara. And it's actually connected to the word charis, which is the word for grace. So in, in the minds of the New Testament writers, joy and grace are connected really uh, tightly, and I know grace is one of those words that we like don 't think about what it actually means it's just you know a good religious word that you say, and you 're like, "Oh yeah, it feels nice. Uh, grace means unmerited favor it is it is the idea of of God providing us with good things, whether or not we deserve them right because again it 's not based on our performance but on god 's character and god 's love for us so uh grace is what leads to the experience of peace, that, that sort of big wholeness, that flourishing, that sort of, I was actually corrected, by the way, in the chat, Victoria pointed out that the meme is more like a block party, right, than a backyard barbecue, which I like better. So thank you, Victoria, that was, that was excellent. Um, yeah, so it's like that block party feel, right? Not, not some, uh, uh, we get that because of God's grace for us, because of God giving us good gifts and giving us more than we need. And the, the experience of that, wholeness and that goodness is what we can call joy. So what does that have to do with Romans 14? Well, Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome before he visited them. It was sort of his introductory letter when he was planning to go and visit Rome. He he was writing to say, hi, I'm Paul. You've probably heard of me. Here's some stuff I'd like to say to you before I get there. And we can tell from Paul's letter that the Roman church was deeply divided over some pretty Important issues like what day of the week should we worship? Uh, some of the some of the Jewish Christians thought we should keep worshiping on Saturday, on the Sabbath day, because that's when that's when you know Jews worship, and they said you know we're we're out of the Jewish faith, we should keep doing that. Others said, yeah, but Jesus was raised on the first day of the week, Sunday, so we should be worshiping on Sunday, and they were having a deep debate. You can imagine that not agreeing on which day you should worship would make it hard to go to church together, right? It's pretty, pretty basic stuff. Uh, the other big issue, and that's what we're talking about in Romans 14, was what the worship gathering looked like. Because in Paul, in those in those early Greek churches, uh, they worshipped around a meal together. Uh, it, it was not dissimilar to the peace offering, uh, shalomim, sort of a meal. Every week they would share a big meal together, and they would worship. And during the meal, they would receive communion together, uh, and that sort of thing. And so. Uh, the problem was that uh, the, the, still the only way you could really get meat butchered in Rome was to go to temples. Temples were the, were the primary butcher shop. And so you couldn't get meat in Rome that hadn't been sacrificed to a Roman god. You just couldn't do it. So any meat that was showing up on the table during worship had been offered to a Roman God. That was just, that was, it just was. You didn't have to ask like you knew it was. So there were some people who said, yeah, big deal. Those gods aren't even real, right? I'm a, I'm a monotheist. We know that our God is the only real God. So it's fine, like whatever. It doesn't really matter. Then there were other people who were like, yeah, I don't know if you've read your Bible, but God's not a super big fan of idolatry. And so I'm not going to touch this meat because that would be like cheating on God. And I don't know about you, but I believe the Bible, right? And so you had, these, you had these stark disagreements where some people were saying, if you have a problem eating this meat, it means your faith isn't strong enough because you believe all these other gods are real. And then you had these other people who were saying, if you eat that meat, it means your faith isn't strong enough because you're idolatrous, right? And again, because every week when they worshiped together, it was around a meal, this was an issue that came up every single week. And so I want to read Paul's advice. And again, it's different from a lot of the other churches because the other letters from Paul that we have are to churches that he planted. So he has this sort of like uh, paternal relationship to them. I'm the apostle that founded your church. This one he does not. So he's offering them some advice on how to navigate this issue that was creating problems every single time they tried to worship together. So we're going to read the first four verses, then we're going to skip ahead a little bit later. So here's, here's what Paul says first here. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, I'm just going to pull randomly out of my hat a random issue. One person believes it's all right to eat anything. But another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, because God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. So Paul says, look, yeah, there's some people who are weak in their faith, and you just should leave them alone. What I love is that Paul doesn't come out and say which side is weak, (laughs) right? So of course it's the other side, right? My side is obviously the strong people in the faith and it's the other side, whichever the other side is, that's weak. I genuinely enjoy that Paul says, look, don't judge them. Don't look down on them. Just accept that they are doing their best. Can you believe that of them? That they're doing their best and you shouldn't argue about it. What you should do is follow your own conscience and trust that the other person is following their own conscience. And if there is a problem, God is going to deal with it because it's God's responsibility in the first place. This is a uh, incredibly provocative solution to this issue, right? Just have a brisket and have some, I don't know, smoke some portobello mushrooms or something, right? And then just have them both and don't freak out if someone else is not eating the same thing you are. Okay, just trust that God is dealing with them the way God is dealing with you. I want to skip down to verse 14 because I, uh, he, go, he, I mean, he says uh, a lot in this chapter that I think is really good, but in the interest of time, I want to go here to 14. Or can we back up just a little bit? whereas I am convinced. There we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Paul, I le- Paul actually does give his own his own opinion here, but it's way after he doesn't tell anyone who's weak and who's strong. Cuz I know and I am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died, then you will not be criticized for doing something that you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness, and here's our words, right? Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God, and others will approve of you too. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Paul says, look, I, it's not that I don't have a position on this. He says, I, I, have, I have a strong conviction. I believe one way is the right answer. But in the same way that I don't want people who disagree with me looking down on me, don't, don't look down on people who disagree with me. I think this is, it's one thing to say, I think both of you are overreacting. And it's another thing to say, look, I, ha- I, I do have a dog in this fight. I do have very specific, clear, strong convictions about which side is correct. And yet still, I will not allow that to disrupt what's happening when we come together at the table. Those are two very different reactions. And what Paul is doing here takes a tremendous amount of maturity and love to say the kingdom of God is not about what we eat and drink or don't eat and drink. It's about coming together in harmony for goodness and peace and joy. Goodness, by the way, uh, it's the Greek word there, the, really a better translation of it is justice, but that's like a whole other sermon. Okay. So for Paul, and, and again, harmony is such a specific word, right? If you're a music person, you know that harmony is what happens when two different things sound good together, right? When every, when every note is the same, that's just unison, which, which can be fun, right? But, but harmony is something completely different. It's a lot harder to do. It takes a lot more practice and training to do. Um, but it sounds incredible. And that's Paul's vision for the church is not everyone who's singing the same note, right? Not everyone eating meat or everyone meeting, eating mushrooms, right? Not everyone omnivores or everyone vegetarians. Not every, everyone Saturday people or everyone Sunday people. But everyone living in harmony, Doing these things together and trusting that God is working on them the same way God is working on me, and and not letting our differences, even over deeply important issues, not letting those differences keep us from coming to the table together, from being a part of the block party. The original question asked, "How do we find this peace and joy?" Right, and again, I want to suggest that that these are realities that exist. Uh, around us and kind of below us and beside us. They're they're ways that we can be grounded. They're foundations for us. And oftentimes we don't experience them. Uh, We don't feel them, right? Um, Because of the state of our world, maybe because the state of our own lives, maybe because of some particularly painful things that we're going through or some hard times or some scary times. But I would like to suggest, much like a good smoke, that if we are in Christ, that those, those times are what, what we're experiencing when the meat is in the stall. That the fire of the Spirit is still burning in our lives, still working within us. And it's often the times when it feels like nothing is happening that the Spirit is doing the most work. It's often the times when we are convinced that we should give up, that we are wondering whether there's any point to starting it in the first place, where we maybe feel like failures, that those are the times when actually the things that make life good are actually becoming. And the best thing we can do in those times is trust, trust that God is the God of the process and tend to the fire, tend to the spirit in our lives. Uh, I think it's only appropriate, since we talked a lot about meat, that we do something for the vegetarians too, right? And so uh, I want to I want to direct your imagination back to another of Paul's letters, the letter to the Galatians, where he talks about what the Spirit produces in our lives as fruit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, self control. These, right? But, but he calls them the fruit of the spirit. And again, for those of you who are, uh, are vegetarian folk, gardening folk, you know, right? If there's a problem with the fruit, uh, you, don't, you don't worry about the fruit, right? You tend to the roots, you tend to the environment, you tend to the soil, you tend to those parts. Because that's, when those parts are good, that's what makes a good fruit, right? And so if we're looking at our lives and we don't see those fruit of the spirit, uh, the answer is not, we'll we'll try to fruit harder. Right? The answer is to, Go back to the basics and go return back to those things that grounded us in the first place and the ways that we are rooted in God's faithfulness to us and tend to the ways that the Spirit is speaking to us and alive in our lives because it's the Spirit's fruit. And when we, were, when we are able to trust and be faithful, that's when, that's when we, we can grow. And so in that spirit, I want to invite us to this weekly piecemeal that we get to share together. Right? This, this offering of peace that Jesus made of his own life for us, to gather us all together, the meat eaters and the vegetarians, the Saturday and the Sunday folks, right? everyone coming together to one table, only united by our common faith in Jesus and our experience of the Holy Spirit. Before we receive communion together, I'm going to invite us uh, into a prayer of examine. I'm going to give you some questions, ask you to reflect prayerfully on them and then I'll pray for all of us together, and then we can uh, receive communion together. So here's the first question I want you to consider. When in the last week have I experienced peace and joy? What in the last week have been barriers to peace and joy in my life? What might be a barrier to peace and joy this week? Finally, how can I be intentional about receiving peace and joy with God this week? How can I make some space for that? Let's pray together. God, you have gathered us today so that we might be reminded that we can experience this full, whole peace that leads to flourishing for all of us because of your grace towards us. That when we experience those moments of abundance, That joy that we feel is an echo of the joy that you feel when you consider us. Uh, We confess that a lot of us uh, freak out when we're in the stalls of our life. When we feel like nothing is happening, that all of our prayers and that all of our attention towards you is not accomplishing anything. And yet we have seen today that it's often in those spaces where you are at work most. The wilderness spaces between Egypt and the promised land. That those are the spaces where we are learning what it means to be your people. And so we approach this table that you have set for us today, where you have declared peace between us and you. You have declared that we are your children. We approach with an attitude of faith, that you are at work among us and around us and within us. As we receive these elements, we pray that they would be a spiritual food, that in receiving them we might know your grace. We we might experience your peace and your joy in a fresh way today. And that that might give us the courage to continue to choose faithfulness as you send us from this place into a world that needs your love. We offer these prayers now and we approach your table this morning in the name of your son Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, this is the meal that he shared with his disciples. And it was during that meal that he broke bread and gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you, take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we, too, eat and drink, and as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. Uh, Friends, as you're going today, I want to, of course, as always, say thank you to all of you who are continuing to support Catalyst through your giving uh, and again, remind you that we're posting our giving updates in our beaker, uh, virtual beaker, so you can grab that uh, either in the YouTube description or the QR codes we have in the building. Um, please make sure you get a chance to look at those, uh, especially if you're uh, curious about where we are financially and, and what you can do to, to help there. Um, but again, thank you to all of you who are continuing to give uh, in that way, and also to all of you who are serving. We are, again, so grateful to have your, your serving. Uh, as well. We're, we're so grateful for the way you create this space for us week after week after week. So thank you for that. Uh, now, as, uh, as you're going, I want to offer a spiritual practice that we don't talk about quite as much around here, but I think it seems uh, very appropriate for today, and that is the spiritual practice of feasting. Uh, feasting is just what it sounds like uh, having a big feast, right? It's, it's, it's what the peace offering really was when you have the big block party barbecue kind of a thing, it's an intentional celebration. And so, you know, I know it's it's Father's Day. So many of you may have feasted yesterday, or going out to feast later today, or something like that already. That's that's wonderful. That's what I'm talking about. Um, Take some time this week to celebrate uh, who God is in your life, how you're experiencing the love of God. Those of you who were raised in churches like mine might remember the old hymn, "Count Your Many Blessings." Right? (laughs) Do you remember that song? Count your many. Cynthia's not, and she knows. Yep. Okay. So whatever, man, you know that song. I know you do. Uh, that's that's kind of what that's about, right? When you when we feast, it's when we we intentionally stop and say we're going to look at all of the ways that God has blessed us and celebrate those things as a way to remember that God is faithful to the things that God has promised. Uh, it, feasting is a way that we intentionally do that together. And so I want to challenge you to, to feast sometime this week, to take some intentional time to get together with some people that you love, uh, if possible people who are part of your church family here, and just feast together and celebrate uh, what God is doing in your life as a way to remember that, that even those of us who are in the stall uh, can remember that God is doing good work in us and among us and, uh, with, uh, and around us. So uh, we can remember that, that God is faithful. So if, you, if you'll stand, I want to dismiss us with a blessing. Uh, Catalyst, you have been created and called by a God who loves you infinitely and who is always at work Uh, doing good things and calling you to good things and bringing our world uh, to the way that it was created to be. So as you go, would you go in that confidence, knowing that this God is faithful, that even when we don't feel those things, we can be assured that the God who created us will continue to perfect us until the day of Christ Jesus. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we'll see you next week.